The following is an interview with Jeff Reno and Ron Osborne, two writers whose talent contributed to some of the most enjoyable and popular episodes of Moonlighting. Jeff and Ron, thank you for your time in answering our questions and for being such a joy to talk to. So now, please enjoy our interview with Jeff and Ron. Okay, are we ready to go, guys? First time I've ever actually gotten dressed for the computer. Jeff! Welcome to the show, Moonlighting fans. Whether you're a Moonlighting fan from way back when, or whether you are new to Moonlighting and you want to know what all the hype is about, you have come to the right place. Hi, I'm Grace. And I'm Shauna. And we're your hosts for the podcast that is all about Moonlighting. When we talk about Moonlighting, we're talking about the Emmy award-winning 80s TV series starring Bruce Willis and Simple Shepherd. So if you're a fan of theirs, you're going to want to stay tuned as we review all 66 episodes. We hope you enjoy this journey with us because we are going to be watching the series episodes one by one and discussing them every week. Now, this is going to take several years, as you can imagine, so please join us because we are going to have so much fun along the way. We will also be releasing bonus episodes of interviews with creators, cast and crew to extend your listening experience. That's right. And we really want to include our Moonlighting fans in this project as much as possible. So write to us and let us know what your thoughts are and even if you have some trivia to disclose. Our email address is fans at moonlightingthepodcast.com and we will include you in our future episodes. So stay with us. Shauna and I are beyond excited to finally bring Moonlighting into the 21st century for some serious discussions. You up for it, Shauna? I sure am. Well, let's get started. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode of Moonlighting the Podcast. We have two very special guests who have joined us today who together wrote a total of 14 episodes of Moonlighting in addition to being producers and senior producers on many other episodes of the show. They are also known for Duckman, Private Dick slash Family Man, Meet Joe Black and another series that I am a totally devoted fan of, The West Wing. Mm. So we'll definitely be talking about that too. So please welcome Jeff Reno and welcome Ron Osborne. Nice to be here. Uh, Hi there. Thanks, you guys. Yeah, thank you guys for joining us. Our pleasure. Is this for free? Yeah, of course. Well, they're paying me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, is it free for the listeners or? Um, right, right. One of you is getting paid. We won't say which one, but. Um, <laughs> I have no idea. Anyway. So I don't know if you've ever um, listened to our podcast, but uh, Grace and I can go into quite a bit of detail. Um, Glenn, I think, laughs at us because some of our podcasts are two parts and each an hour long, and they go way into detail about moonlighting. So yesterday, Grace and I recorded our podcast on Atomic Shakespeare, which is kind of the focus. You know, of course, we want to know about all things moonlighting that you guys were involved in. But I think we recorded four hours yesterday for Atomic Shakespeare. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's yeah, much longer than the show was. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. that's probably longer than you spent, you know, writing it. <laughs> close, close. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, well, let's uh, hear your origin story. Let's just start from the beginning and hear um, how you guys met and how you ended up on Moonlighting. Well, um, I'll try to do an abbreviated version. I moved out to LA in 1978 in the summer, and it turns out Ron had been there already for a little while, and we separately before we knew each other, both got into a writing class um, at a place called Sherwood Oaks Experimental College. You had to submit some writing to get in. And I think only 12 people got into the class and we met in the class. The teachers there were people who had worked in the business. Um, we got this guy, Gary Belkin, who had worked on Sid Caesar and some great old shows, Carol Burnett, Get Smart. And one of the things he said, we were both uh, Ron and I had both gotten in it. Uh, it was mostly about half-hour sitcom writing at the time. And one of the things he told us was that the business tends to like partners, at least that part of the business, the, you know, the sitcoms, because they pay you as one entity when you're a team, but they get two people pitching jokes in the room all the time. And so you know, they get uh, kind of double their money that way. I think we had just gotten together just to go out and get a beer or something. We got along very quickly in there. And then we decided to try that and sold a script and a mash script that we wrote. 
and uh, that got us Mork and Mindy. That was our first job. We got on staff there. We didn't sell it. We wrote a spec script, right? It Did I like, say sell it? It sounded like we said sold it. We didn't. We, oh, we, no, we, we didn't. Wrote. That was our first spec that got us going to business, and that we got Mork and Mindy off of that. A couple other shows, Too Close for Comfort, Night Court. We were on staff on a couple of those, and we wrote a pilot when we were at Night Court for Warner Brothers. It was, uh, it was a detective who had three ex-wives, and it was written a little bit like Moonlighting ended up being written. This is the year before Moonlighting came on, and, uh, but it was comedic and sort of bantery, fast-paced like that, and our agent got that to Glenn. Glenn didn't have a staff yet when he did the first five or six, that first little season that they call season one. He didn't have a staff. He got freelancers to do that. And when he put the staff together that spring or summer for the first full season, our agent got him that script and he brought us on staff. So that was up till then. Sorry, Ron, couple, if you got anything to add to that. A couple of addendums to that. Uh, the I Had Three Wives show never went. There were six episodes. They weren't very good. And that was our first, up until this point, we had written pretty much just multi-camera sitcom, which is a whole different kind of style, set up, payoff, that sort of thing. Very jokey. And this was the first time we actually wrote characters. And um, when we came into Moonlighting, that was our only experience doing that at the time. Well, the MASH, the MASH script, I guess that was our first time, but we were... Sort of a single camera type of thing, yeah. Camera, but those were other characters. Those existed, and we were basically trying to, to do the show. I Had Three Wives it was the first time we were doing our own characters and our own comedy, and it was a real learning experience. Um, the show sucked. I think our pilot was okay, but it did get us because... You know, Moonlighting was in those first six episodes. There was nothing else like it on TV. And when we were brought on, I think Roger was already there. Roger had been hired first. Like a week before or something, you know, because Glenn was just putting a staff together then. Yeah. That was the first season staff, wasn't it? Yeah. Midway through, it was Roger and us. Um, Deborah and Carl really were brought there? on right around the same time. Maybe okay. right after. I can't remember, but, but they came on. We always think of it as first season because... Those first five or six we think of as kind of a spring tryout, but everyone talks about that as season one. So really, he didn't have a staff until season two, technically. Uh, yeah. So two questions um, based on what you just said. Is a spec script an example of what you could write if you were hired on the show? Like, for example, Mark and Mindy, that you're just giving them an example, like this is an episode yeah. that we could write for you. Okay, that's what a spec yeah, script is. No one's waiting for it. No one's expecting it. Um, and at the time... For like MASH, that was, again, the, the script that kind of got us everything. We literally just watched the show. And I remember going to the library to look at old TV guides and write down the synopses of shows they did so we wouldn't duplicate anything. This was pre-internet, pre-IMDB and all of that. People do it a lot of different ways with spec scripts. It's their calling card kind of when you're starting to write. And the thought was, it was a favorite show of mine, I know, and, and I think Ron's, and uh, our thinking was write the smartest thing you can to show you're writing off, not necessarily something that was at the level of a lot of the other sitcoms that were on, but, but try to write something that shows that you can write to a certain level. So Mork and Mindy was actually nothing like MASH, but they saw a kind of writing that, you know, they figured we could do that. So I don't know what they saw. I really don't. That was, yeah. that was just the deep end of the pool. That was just three jokes a page was the rule of thumb. And I remember then getting up in the morning and eating my breakfast. These are the first weeks and literally just losing it. I eat my breakfast <laughs> and I go to work. Um, this happened more than a few times early on. I wasn't throwing up just no. for the people to know. It's not a given that writers no. do that. That's this not part of the process. Major no. projectile vomiting, but it's funny. I'm going to fast forward. By the time we're on moonlighting, we were writing just ahead of the cameras. The most imaginable pressure you, know, you, oh. you, you can have. And we got used to it. You know, I mean, it was just no big deal. Right. You were also saying that you were writing for single camera. So I never thought about that as a writer. You are writing your script based on camera? They're called multi-camera because you're doing it on a stage in front of a live audience. And what you'll do is set up three different cameras or four to all be capturing this at one time. And everything's staged to be caught by one of these cameras. So you capture a performance from all the different angles all at once, and you're doing it for the audience, and they actually are laughing, and they're, they're like watching a play. Single camera is like a movie. That's where you've got one camera, 
once in a while you do a little one that grabs close-ups and stuff, but you basically are doing one camera that's capturing all the, all the stuff. And um, every take then will be from a different angle or something. I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on this, but it, basically it's the formatting is different because they board the shows differently. In other words, when you write the script and then you prepare the pre-production to go into the night of production and sitcom or the week of production, they have to break it down. And for some reason, it develops separately. I don't know why sitcom is, is double-spaced the way it is, and we're single-spaced. But anyway, the only reason we bring this up is for some reason, when you come up through multi-camera, they think you can't write single-camera. I don't know if that's okay. still, um, you know, and vice versa. And, you know, we luckily got a chance, and, and we found out we could. So, And I think partly because we had written this pilot, there was a single-camera that had humor-like moonlightings in it. And also, just for people who are watching... One thing that's relevant is that back then, and it's one of the reasons Moonlighting was, was such a phenomenon, I mean, beyond, well, there were many reasons, but one of them was there were, I can't remember when Ally McBeal came along, but there were no real flat out comedies that were hour long single cameras, mm -hmm. you know? It was always, if you came from sitcom, you were going from sitcom into hour long drama. There wasn't hour long comedy to go into. So Moonlighting was groundbreaking that way too. and. Uh, but it came along at a perfect time for us because we could make that transition, at least bring the humor to it. We had to adjust our writing style. But That differentiation, by the way, would come to bite us on the ass in the Emmys. Because, you know, the year we were nominated and yeah. the this particular episode was, in fact, I think Moonlighting was nominated for 17 Emmys, only winning one. Um, we were going up against like the Cagney and Lacey alcoholism episode and, and, and elsewhere. We were going up against heavy-duty dramas, and we didn't stand a chance. I'd, ra I'd way rather watch ours, but, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're with you. We agree. I agree. <laughs> so that year, because I know sometimes it would be put in different categories. Was Moonlighting put in the dramedy? Uh, a dramedy. <laughs> in the drama? It was a dramedy, yeah. Was it put in the drama category that year? Is that part of the problem with winning? It never went against half hour. We never went against comedy. We oh, I see. Because it was an hour. Yeah. yeah. TV was split up into half hour and hour. That was comedy drama. Yeah. And, uh, uh -huh. you know, now there's all kinds of mixes. A lot of the half hour so-called comedies are not funny necessarily. They could be great, but they're not necessarily super funny. It's just there's all kinds of mixes now, you know, so it's not relevant anymore. But, uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, especially the dream sequence that year. And, you know, it's just amazing that Moonlighting didn't win more Emmys, but I'm sure you guys couldn't believe it at the time, I'm sure. <laughs> a little, a little you know? frustrating, but we kind of understood it, but it was, it was very frustrating, you know. Oh, yeah. How you've explained it there, it makes sense what you're saying, what you're going up against. The other real dramas that Drama are putting drama. Yeah. together, yeah. yeah, some real hard-hitting shows, yeah. Right. So have you guys been watching? Have you seen it on Hulu? Have you seen the remastered episodes? Have you seen the music changes? Yeah. I've seen four or five. I watched um, yeah. um, one of my favorites at the time anyway was um, Symphony and Knocked Flat. And uh, what was interesting about that episode is that's kind of when the staff came together under pressure that we were very unprepared. Well, we were unprepared for virtually every episode. Um, that one especially. And we literally sat in a room and the staff, uh, I mean, we obviously had pitched an idea to Glenn about the thing of, of a fine date versus a fun date and all that. Mm -hmm. And we broke it up separately and wrote separately. And then it came together and amazingly it worked. Hey, Ron, didn't Melissa and Dale have credit on that? I think so. M Melissa, yeah, Delano, Melissa was Jay Daniels' assistant at the time. And she was given a shot to write, um, where, I think with her husband, Dale. And so what the staff did, one of the things you guys are probably aware of, but credits are misleading sometimes, writing mm -hmm. credits. Because, um, we found that out, yes. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, that, yeah. it's not that they're false, but people on staff, Ron and I, Roger Director, wrote a fair amount of things that were not credited for. It's just part of what you do as a staff, you know. And you always still leave the original writers' names on it. And as far as I know, Melissa and Dale, might have done a good job. I, I don't remember the script, but that was one of many where the staff took it and then had to rewrite and kind of make it more of the show, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. But my point there is that was the first time it kind of worked, <laughs> you know, um, because Glenn, God love him, was a terrible showrunner. Uh, first show, he didn't delegate well. He would spend way too much time in pre-production or post-production. It was hard to get his attention long enough sometimes. Mm. And um, 
this kind of grew organically out of that. Yeah. I've got yep. here Symphony and Knocked Flat, that's written right. by Dale Gallano and Pauline Gallinot, Miller. Yeah. Yes, that's that right. Oh, that's right. She was in post-production at the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's book. Right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is what we do now when we do the podcast. We refer to our book. <laughs> I love that. I love that. By the way, yeah. I have not heard a podcast yet, and I will, but I've read, you know, I read the posts and things. You guys know so much more about the show than, than any of us do. It's amazing. It's amazing. God. Yeah. And, it's thank, and by the way, thanks. Thanks for that. I mean, I love that you guys are that into it. It's great. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. We try and get into a lot of detail. And yeah, even you guys do. And even while we're recording our podcast, we have an epiphany, don't we, Shauna, about a certain thing. Or I've noticed a goof in the show. For example, Sybil and her and her runners can see them a lot of times. Um, <laughs> but just going yeah. back, I'm so glad you mentioned Symphony and Knocked Flat because I so underrated that episode until we reviewed it. Now, if you look at our podcast episodes, that's a three-parter. Now, wow. normally our episodes are two parts. <laughs> But Symphony and Knocked Flat had so much in it packed into this episode that we did, how long were we talking, Shauna? We must have been talking four or five hours on this episode. There was so much in it. I know. Crazy. One of the funniest things in watching it again was Bruce in the boxing sequence and how physically funny he was, almost like a silent comedian. Yes. Uh, the, the stuff he was doing, dancing around the ring and doing the bolo punch and and we knew this guy could do anything. He, you could put him in a tuxedo, Gary uh -huh. Grant. You know, you yeah. could put him in a, in a wife beater in an action sequence. I mean, he was, I, I you know, I, I mean, I wish we could have used him more uh, to certain injuries. And, and the special episodes like Symphony, like Dream Sequence, like Shakespeare, and not take nothing away from Sybil at all. But Bruce was a fine. I mean, we were, we were lucky. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if this has come up. But Bruce was not the first choice. Do you mm -hmm. know who was? There was a DJ in Los Angeles who had one top 40 hit, Disco Duck, and his name was Rick Dees. He got the part. Bruce was brought in. They wanted Rick Dees. Then he apparently like disappeared and went on a bender or something. And um, Rick Dees then dropped out because he was offered 13 episodes of a show called Solid Gold. So Glenn had a second chance to bring in Bruce. That's the story we've heard. We were not there yet, obviously, but... Um... That's what we heard happen. Boy, you guys didn't know. I think that serves as that opening bombshell. You no, were well, Glenn with. never mentions that. Isn't that right, Sean? Yeah. It was no big deal. And when you sit there and you go, holy shit, are we lucky? You know, he kind of shrugs and goes, well, it would have been a different show. Mm. And he's right. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The way it went. There are a lot of those kind of, you know, surprises and stories that we could probably share, but I don't know if it's proper. For instance, you remember when Sybil had twins during the run of the series, I was the actual father. Wow, I okay. I wanted to keep it down low because the other writers just get jealous. You they know, get jealous. Kind of, yeah. I don't even know if Ron knew this. I, I wasn't sure. <laughs> yeah. Ron's shaking his head. <laughs> now, that's interesting because we always hear that there were 3,000 you know, men that auditioned for the David Addison role and all of that. But yeah, I don't think we ever knew. I know that name Rick Dees has come up. We didn't know that he was actually cast and things were kind of moving forward with him and yeah, Bruce was in the mix then. And but yeah, it's it's kind of like everything will work out the way it's supposed to in the end, yeah. you know. And Dennis Dugan was in line as well, and Adam Arkin. Arkin. He was um when we did Labor Dude Duckman, he was one of the people that we we ultimately went with Jason Alexander, but Adam Arkin, he also came in and impressed the heck out of us. That's pretty really weird when you think about Adam Arkin being second in line for both David Addison and Duckman. It's kind of a bizarre <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I knew about Adam on Moonlighting. That, that might be. Yeah, I've heard that story too. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We talk about Dennis Dugan sometimes also because even though he ended up playing Walter later, and he would not have ultimately worked for the role of David Addison with Sybil, I don't think, but he does have a quality about him. You know, he has a quality, like a very confident quality about him. And he's a good actor, you know, but for the same reason he didn't work with Sybil as Walter, you know, that was, uh, you know. He worked as Walter because he was that quirkier, you know, where you're just like, this is never going to last because you're never going to be with a guy like that. The idea was to bring in a Ralph Bellamy, like in His Girl Friday. And, and Dennis isn't, you know, that kind of Ralph Bellamy. Dennis is a great mm -hmm. guy, director, all of that. 
And what I really meant was not Dennis. You know, he's a talented guy. It, the idea didn't work. You know, the idea was not good. So wish I could eat. We'll tell you all about that if you want to know. That's all right. Oh yeah, I want to know all about that. Yeah, I had to bring it up with Glenn because that was because um, so I I started watching the Nighting when I was twelve or thirteen. So I was watching it as it aired and, and all of that. And yes, when we got to that part in the show, to me, it's kind of like the jump the shark moment in a way. When we got to, when she finally came back and they're in a room together and that's the first thing you get, you know, that she's married and the baby's not his. Uh, yeah, it was like, what? Yeah. 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 Well, what did Glenn say about that? He said um, that they weren't both available really to, but, they, but then they were there in the show. I don't know. He was trying to find another character to play off of Sybil because Bruce was busy with Die Hard. Well, that, yeah. There's, there's a lot more. If you guys want to hear it, let me know. But uh, there's a lot more. Yeah, go on. We're here. I guess uh, when he came back with that, he had been gone for a while. I think shooting clean and sober at the time. Was that right? Am I got the, do I have the seasons right? Yeah, season four, yeah. Yeah, and um, when he came back with that idea, the staff didn't like it. Um, I know I will just speak for myself. I think Ron was in the same boat, but I really didn't like it. And I sat down with Glenn and told him how much I didn't like it. And I told him that I think the audience is going to hate it. I think you've been waiting all this time, et cetera, et cetera. And he got very angry. And at some point, you know, I just sort of stuck with it for maybe longer than I should have. He got very angry and said, maybe it would be better if you just left. <laughs> so I, I almost got fired over an argument over that move. And I said, no, that's not, that's not what I want out of it. But I'm telling you, it's not going to go well. And it didn't, you know, but, you know, I mean, he wins and it's his show and he should, obviously, but it was a point of contention and a fairly strong one at the time. It was unfortunate. Oh, and the most unfortunate part is we were tasked with writing it. And um, <laughs> I remember in the room, and, and this, I think the first thing he listened to was, I said, I, I don't know how to write this. You know, and, and that, yeah. that's the first thing he, he listened, I, I think. And you I know what remember. happened. You remember this, Ron? He came back to that because he said, because you have such a big problem with it, I want you guys to write it because you will do the best job of fixing or making it palatable, you know, because we'll try our hardest to make it palatable. That was a reasoning that yeah. came back to us after the fight. I don't remember that at all. I must yeah. have been medicated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was wrong. I don't think we nailed it either. No, no. I don't think you could. There are always yeah. are disagreements along the way, you know. Yeah, and Sybil writes in her book how, you know, it seems like everybody was just like, why are we doing this? You know, we've stuck with these characters. I mean, the whole show is that the whole premise is that they're going to end up together at some point. That seemed like the promise to me. Um, so for either one of them to be coupled up or married off to someone right in the middle of this whole love story unfolding just seems such, yeah, a left turn. There's a lot of speculation about all kinds of things that, you know, there were a lot of behind the scenes things going on that even Ron and I and the rest of the writers, um, I don't think we're really that privy to. I, I think I know more about it in hindsight. But, you know, Glenn and Sybil had a number of issues with each other along the way. I'm not mm -hmm. even sure, uh, you know, Glenn may not, this may not be true at all. He may not realize it. If it is true, I don't know. I sometimes thought maybe it was sort of a subconscious strike at her a little bit, you know. What had happened, well, here's a little bit of a scoop for you guys. Maybe in the same conversation, maybe I can put to bed all of this moonlighting curse bullshit that has come out since. The fact that they slept together and that's always the death of a show. I don't know what everyone in your, in your site feels about all that, but what had happened the previous season at the end of that, you know, when they slept together, Sybil got pregnant with the twins and was not available for a while to work. Bruce, at some point in there, uh, broke his collarbone. And what you had, I think Ron and I, I know because we talked about it a lot, and Glenn had a lot of fun ideas about what to do with them after they slept together that would have maintained, it wasn't about a baby, it wasn't about, you know, these horribly hurt feelings, it wasn't angsty, it would have been more of the show that we could have continued after the sleeping together. And we had a lot of fun ideas or thoughts about that going into it. But once those two things happened and they weren't available to work together, we had to shoot all of Sybil's scenes in the summer while she was still available. And Bruce's that we had to match 
um, later in the fall when he was available again. So we had to send her character back to Chicago. And the only time they were together was the occasional phone call or, or the claymation episode we did. But you essentially, at that point, right after they slept together, you had a romantic comedy where the two leads were never together. You know, like I love Curtis and Elise. I love the people. I love the characters they played. They're fantastic. But that wasn't the show. And Bruce being sad and upset because Maddie was in Chicago and vice versa, that wasn't the show. You know, it was the two of them going at it together. And that didn't exist in that fourth season. There's no way that is going to work like it had before. And that was not about them sleeping together. That was about the availability of the stars. I mean, that was, it was that simple. That's why the show got worse. Fifth season, John and I left and Glenn left. And that was kind of, you know, it was just not going to be written the same anymore. There was one positive for me out of that. There was a scene with Sybil talking to her parents, announcing to her parents, you know, why she had come back to Chicago and stuff with Robert Weber and Eva Marie Saint. I loved writing for those two. It was great, especially Eva Marie Saint. I mean, on the front and, you know, Requiem for a Heavyweight and all, you know. And such a nice person. You know, we got to meet her on the set and she was just terrific. It was really, really fun. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, to Eris Human is, I think, the only episode where we kind of see what could have been. That's the one show. It's the last um, of season three. It's the episode after they sleep together. um, Where they're solving a case and sleeping together. And it's like, let's make a pact that's never happened and and things like that, that episode. But still, they keep falling back into bed with each other. That's kind of a glimpse of, to me, the one episode where it's like, this is what it could have been. Sleeping together, they're solving cases, you know? It would have to grow yeah. from there, but you're right. That different versions of that were, were absolutely possible had they been together, you know, and it was just, you know, didn't happen, so, you know. Now, when Sybil came back and say the fourth season, I know you weren't there for fifth season, but did their feelings about each other change? We've heard that they didn't want to kiss anymore. Would that affect some of the writing about Maddie and David being together later? No, I don't think so. Not- I didn't know that. We were just basically keeping our heads down and doing the job. Now we had them back together, but obviously she'd come back under this cloud. Everyone hated it. I'll never forget the night of that episode. My phone rings and I pick it up and it's my wife's family on the other side. The first thing goes, we hate it. (laughs) Literally. (laughs) And that was the beginning of it. But no. um, He's just now making up with his wife. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Have they forgiven you yet? (laughs) I will say, I don't know about you, Jeff. I don't remember going down to the set much that season. I, I just um, remember going down at one point, Alan Arkish was directing some episodes and I, and I went down just to watch Alan direct, I think. And uh, it wasn't a fun set, you know, but I, I, I don't, I didn't know all about that stuff. You it had changed mentioned. a lot. We, we would visit. The overall mood had changed, you know, it had gone from this special show to this missed opportunity. And I think yeah. that was kind of in the air. Because we had, we had visited the set quite a bit the first couple of years and just to go down and talk to everyone, see everyone and, and all that. And it, it was, at the beginning, so much fun. Everyone, everyone kind of knew they were part of something special. And that was just a really, the atmosphere was great. And it had, it had changed quite a bit. It was, it was sad. Although I do remember one fun, um, I think that was the year the, the Curtis and Elise show uh, that included the Casablanca scene and all One that. of my favorites. Thank you. Ron and I loved writing that. And I did go, I think we both went down to the set then to kind of watch some of that. And yeah. they were just so great. Curtis was awesome in that. And I really loved those two. And I, it was so fun. It was really fun giving them at least a fun episode. If it wasn't what the audience wanted, oh, well, but, but it was still fun being able to give them something like that. It was already, the atmosphere was better because it was just those guys and they were terrific, you know. So For me, yeah. I toggle between a couple of films as my all-time favorite film but one of them is Casablanca and they were able to get props from the original set of Casablanca. Ron look at them nodding they know this already they, they uh, know that we had props. No, from uh, no, no I only know about the lampshades I know the lampshades were the originals from the movie but yeah. anything else I don't know and I know no, that no, the plane was a, a small guy cast I mean, thing in the background. <laughs> That is like the all-time perfect studio movie where all the elements came together because it, it's amazing that anything coherent comes out of, you know, sometimes in films and and, um, and such a perfect film. And I just had to go yes. down to the set mask in the aura of the props from it. 
Did you guys know that Humphrey Bogart's son was actually an extra in that episode? No. I'm kidding. I just wanted to see oh. if I could get you guys on something. but I... Oh, my God. Keep trying, uh, Jeff. Keep trying, Jeff. Okay. All right. <laughs> you were saying that Glenn's subconscious was coming out on Moonlighting and Tracks of My Tears, the episode that Maddie actually does come back to Blue Moon. Um, he actually has her driving a train into Blue Moon and smashing it to bits. Yeah. And yeah, if that's not his subconscious, you know. I don't know what blaming, it is. Yeah, I don't know what it is. You know, blaming a lot of that on, I, putting that a lot I don't want to psychoanalyze, but yeah. I know. Speaking of people saying, that's uh, Hitchcock in, uh, was it North by Northwest, has her kissing Cary Grant, cutting to then a train going into a tunnel, which Hitchcock thought was the most Freudian cut he'd ever made. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yep, there you go. Now, uh, you guys were over in the blue building, as they refer it to? Yeah, I didn't know they did, but okay, yeah. <laughs> We've always wondered what the blue building was. It was blue. That was it. It was just painted blue. That's that's all we ever heard about it, actually. Because it was just offices. It was not. It was never a studio or anything, you know. Um, it's just that Bruce thanked the people in the blue building when he accepted. I think that's it. People started calling it that just because it was the only one blue building on the lot. And uh, who knows how they painted it that way. Yeah. I'm not sure I ever knew that. But anyway. <laughs> so I'd love to know, what is your favorite episode you've written for Moonlighting? Wow. Mm. I, I would have to go with the Shakespeare episode. I mean, in fact, because this is not a scoop, but that was a really good season across the board. And at the end of it, Jeff and I wanted to leave. We, frankly, wanted to kind of expand and, and, and you know, because we'd been so well received. That episode had been so well received. We knew we weren't going to top it. We were getting some movie yeah. offers at the time. And, you know, we just thought it might be time. But we had a great season and a great finish. and. I don't know. In retrospect, maybe we should have. Glenn made us a great offer. He basically said, if you say, well, I don't know if I should. Well, I'll just tell this part. He asked us to run the show because he was he, he was going to run the show. And so he asked us to run it. It was so dysfunctional on so many levels. I'm not All talking right. personality rise. I'm talking about even the production. Okay. We still could not deliver 22 episodes. And I don't think we were the guys to step uh -huh. into them and be able to do it. Ron, let me jump in because... The important thing was he asked us to do that, but Bruce had already asked us to write Hudson Hawk, the movie that he did. And so we told Glenn, we wouldn't have had time to run the show. We said, we will stay on and write as much as we can and help and consult and all that, but we didn't have time to be showrunners also. What happened was the deal Glenn made with us is, if you write the first episode and the last episode or a later episode, I don't remember if you said the last specifically, then you're free to write a feature in there. And in the meantime, Bruce had come to us and offered us, you know, he had this idea for Hudson Hawk. So anyway, okay. I'm answering your question, favorite episode. Jeff may have a different one, but yeah, I wouldn't. No, I like, I like a few. I like Brad Tupperman quite a bit, but I think mm -hmm. Shakespeare stands out. The fun writing it, the acclaim it got, everything about it was, it was, I'll tell you a little secret about it, which it sounds immodest, but I don't mean it this way exactly. In a certain kind of way, it was maybe one of the easiest ones for us to write, which sounds weird, but because we had this more comedic background, it was a parody, basically, you know, and it was almost, it was a little more like a sketch comedy. And so we had this thing, Taming of the Shrew, to play off of. And, you know, the iambic pentameter was difficult, but the comedy came almost more easily in a way because we had this thing to mock a little bit. Because we were truly, I think we had finished either two or three acts when they started shooting. Right. We got up, we got up to, the, to the wedding. That was it. And then we were shooting just ahead of the camera. I mean, writing just ahead of the camera the rest of the way. And uh, so it was all, well, it all sounds braggy, but it was all first draft. It was all last second. And it was, you know, but there was something, we were having a great time doing it. And so in almost every way, it was, it was a favorite of ours. Yeah. Well, and here's the other thing. Jeff might have been slaving over iambic pentameter, but I was not. Everyone says iambic pentameter. We were writing jokes, you know. It had more or less, more or less a rhythm to them, you know. Yeah. Well, yes. And um, in fact, Shakespeare only wrote one play completely in iambic pentameter, and it's probably his worst play. You never see it done. It's Henry VIII. Okay. Have you ever seen that one? No. No one has. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> yeah. So for instance, when Petruchio shows up in Verona, it's an easy joke to put the Audi insignia on the blanket. BMW. Okay. 
and then bring in Ninja. You know, why not? You know, and that section there is the only Shakespeare we used. I was slaving over iambic pentameter, and it really bugged me at the time that yours didn't match that rhythm. But, you know. I've often wondered, were you guys familiar with iambic pentameter before you wrote this episode? Yeah. The window breaks, tis the east, the Juliet, my son. That's it. And I was an English major. I had had read a lot of Shakespeare. So, yeah, we had never written it, but we had read a lot of it. Yeah. We've never got a straight answer. Now, I don't know if you guys can answer this, but we've never got a straight answer as to how much this damn episode cost because it would have been, I mean, it's an epic episode. We recorded it yesterday. You know, I said the amount of organisation that must have gone into this episode, the costumes, the set decoration was beautiful. You know, everything to organise the extras and get them dressed. And and Jay says that he had a second, almost a second A unit filming I mean, not only were they filming at the Fox lot, they were filming on the back lot of Universal. Have you talked to Jay? Yeah, we've interviewed yes. Jay. Jay gave us a number. This is a time when when hour-long shows budgets were a million, a million and a half. Mm. This, he said, was three and a half million. This one episode. Wow. And he had, Amazing. we literally had two A units going. We yeah. did. I don't know if Jay told you, but he directed the second yeah. A unit. Yeah. yeah. And there were chickens and we had chicken wranglers. Who knew there were chicken wranglers? Not only did you have chicken wranglers, mm-hmm. you had door wranglers as well. That's right. That's right. What, wait, what wranglers? Door wranglers. Door? Yeah, for the what, doors. What's that? Yeah, because there were people behind the scenes either keeping the door open or pushing the door shut. Oh, <laughs> that's right. Well, just to give you a little, a little behind the scenes thing, there's always built into hour-long shows um, is always like a week or so of prep time for director, location scouts, costume, everybody. So they have a week to prepare for what the show is going to be. And so any time you're spending on all that stuff during production time adds a lot of money to it. And the fact that we were writing this last second means that there had not been anywhere near adequate prep time for any of those people, a director included. Oh, and we weren't using our sets. So we were limited even in what we could do. We, we knew we had the back lot at Universal. And we knew what sets we had there. So we had to write basically the episode on what we had. And it didn't in any way inhibit us. However, you know, it, that was what we were dealing with. We didn't have sets. We couldn't do practical anyway. We couldn't go out and drive around L.A., you know. Nor did they, until they saw the scenes, day of sometimes, they didn't know what costumes would be necessary, what extras would be necessary. It was just nuts. So that added the cost. And then because there were two A units, um, this is what I remember. Maybe Jay told you this already, but it it was the equivalent. These things were usually seven and eight day shoots, Mm. hour long shows. Mm. And ours was the equivalent of 16 because we had the two A units shooting all the time. So that's what I remember. That was the equivalent of 16 days of shooting. So it was all kind of nuts. I believe it was the most expensive hour of TV ever at the time. It it shows, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah, he said it that does. it was 11 days of shooting plus the other, the five days of his yeah. second A unit, basically, right. simultaneously. They were still in the 11 days, but he basically right. counts it as 16 days because... That's what I mean, the equivalent yeah. of, yeah. 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 We had in the script, in the top of the fourth act, a little piece of animation where, because Petruchio is not getting laid and, you know, he has yet to tame the shrew and he's traveling back Ron. home. Ron. Making yes. love. Making love. And because we had to, <laughs> Thank you. Had to tra- travel back for the wedding, we animated, we, we wrote in the script, was a very circuitous, you know, getting lost and finding their way because he doesn't have his wits about him, basically. He didn't have the time. And we, we know this, this uh-huh. show was put together and then aired in very, very short order. Uh, yeah, apparently there was just four days of editing. Apparently it wrapped up on the 21st and then it was aired on the 25th. I think that's right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we would have gotten the song in there if you know we had written it that way because you know we had to get the song clearance, they had to choreograph the dance number, all of that. Luckily, we had the first two acts done, and that song was in there. Otherwise, I, I don't think we would have made it. Wow. Good Levin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We were wondering about that if that was your choice. Good Levin. Yeah, that was yeah. there were two choices, actually, if I may. That I suggested that one, but I'd come in with a backup which I thought would have been better, frankly. And it was Little Richard's uh, Long Tall Sally, which has the refrain, okay. we're going to have some fun tonight. 
which I thought would have been better, but Glenn's like good love and better, and it's fine. It's a great choice, and Bruce killed it. Yeah. Bruce did a great oh, job. Oh, yeah, he did a great job, and, yeah, totally he had right. a high fever that day too. He wasn't too well, but. That's right. He was, oh. he was kind of sick. Yeah. 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 Sybil did not especially like being tied up um, in that episode. <laughs> she, was, she was starting to get a little frustrated at, I think the first scene we wrote was the limbo scene, which isn't in a show that we're credited with. But maybe the second one was in knowing her when she uh, has fixed the flat tire and comes in filthy and torn up and, yeah. and all that stuff. And, you know, I think, I think she had reached a point where she didn't love what we were doing to her in these shows. And it, it really, truly was not. We just thought it was all funny, you know, but. Um, I don't remember, Jeff. We went down to the set, to the church. It was a church in, in East L.A., we went to to watch the wedding scene. And of course we come in when Sybil is at the kneeler on the altar with a gag, which had been pulled down because of between takes and her hands tied. And she looks at us and goes, you like seeing me like this, don't you? <laughs> I don't know if we said anything back. I just think we smile at them, you know. And that was the moment that led to me being the father of her twins, I believe. Oh, I think that But especially in these early episodes, Sybil was was game for stuff. I mean, she let paint get poured all over her yeah. in one of the early episodes and stuff. And High in their face, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe at this point, tensions were such that it came in. But early on, she had no trouble with that stuff. And to be fair, and I think Glenn has said this in, in interviews before, too, it's really hard. Actors, you know, doing an hour-long show is just constant for the actors. And it's just hard in any situation, all the memorization. And we had quite a few more pages that they would have to learn because it was the fast paced. And because of the production issues, they were learning it last second. And I think two and three years into that, you know, I don't know the details of what went on between her and Glenn, but I can see why she might've been exhausted. You know, it's, it was a really, oh, yeah. really difficult thing to do. You know, it really was. Shauna and I would love you to come and join our Moonlighting community. You can follow our Moonlighting the Podcast Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter at moon underscore podcast 85, as well as our YouTube channel. You can also join our Moonlighting the Podcast Facebook group where we talk about everything Moonlighting. What could be better than that? There was, um, it was a script by Carrie about the guy who kills his wife and buries her and then he gets the phone call. What, what episode was that, Jeff? The man um, who cried, Santa cried once. Yes. Yeah. That was an extended sequence, basically to give Bruce and Sybil a day off. Mm. That whole sequence was like eight minutes, which was very yeah. unusual. We said and that was, in the in our episode. We mentioned that it's seven it or eight was, minutes in and we still haven't seen Maddie or David. So it was yeah. obvious that we were killing time. <laughs> and we, we know when Sybil and Bruce needed breaks, yeah. 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 Can you tell us what your ending was? Because Glenn said that all he did was change the ending. He said the rest of the script was fantastic. He hardly touched it, which was very rare. Well, if I may, yeah. what the fuck? Oh, okay. No. If we can address the yeah. 800 herd of elephants in the room. Please do. Um, I, I'm sorry, but if I can just. Of course, correct me. A little bit. I want to know the truth. Well. Should I tell it because you're angry? Glenn didn't write a single word of the script, not, not a single word anywhere at all, all the way through the end. It was absolutely a first draft out of our typewriters. He didn't touch it. Here's the other thing, though. He's been saying the show was always Taming of the Shrew. I've always, he always Period. wanted to do an episode of Taming of the Shrew ever since yeah. he saw Meryl Streep do, do something in the park. Yes, um, we've heard that story so many times, yeah. And then he starts saying... Well, I was talking about it so much that the guys came up and see me and, and, and said, well, we should just do the damn episode. And what happened, I'm going to give you a timeline. Mm -hmm. What happened is I'm in the office one morning, I'm talking to Roger and Jeff comes in and he says, let's do a show on Hammock Potameter. Cool. Let me tell him that part of it, okay? We were looking for a special show to do, something like the dream sequence had been in the first season. We were sort of going to do it for the second. And driving into work, literally the entire thing came to me in a, in a flash sort of, it was one of those weird kind of moments to do a spoof in iambic pentameter, a period thing. And my idea that came to me in that, on that drive in was to do Hamlet because it was more um, Hamlet's, you know, the uncle and the, and the mother kill the father because they're having an affair. It was a murder mystery. And that was my first thought that that would be like the show. 
And so, that's what I came in and told Ron about, and we kicked it around for a while. Didn't love what we were coming up with, so. At this point, you know, great. We have, we have this great idea, and we have a meeting with the whole staff, and we pitched some ideas. We had like four or five ideas, and this was one of them. And we pitch, I, I, I don't know, X, Y, Z. Oh, and we want to do a show on anic pentameter. And Glenn said, well, tell me more about that. And we do. Now, at this point, the words William Shakespeare, the words Taming of the Shrew, had never been uttered in those offices. Not to us. And you can ask anyone on that staff. All right. It was never. Shakespeare was never talked about. And then yeah. we're beating the show out and we hit a snag. And I, I don't remember what it was. And I will give Glenn credit for this. We went back and we told him we had a problem. And he says, well, why don't you just do it in Elizabethan? And so I said, well, why don't we do Taming of the Shrew? And he slams his fist on the table and he goes, that's it. Yeah. That is the first time those words ever came out and were uttered in that office. And I would love to get on a panel with Glenn and talk about that. So, <laughs> right. And then we wrote it. This is the first I'm hearing where he did anything at the end. Oh, what did okay. he say? Yeah, he, he said that in one of the interviews that, that he wrote a little something. He, never, he didn't write any iambic pentameter. He didn't. It was literally our, all ours. And it's only frustrating. Glenn is uh, just a terrific writer and obviously deserves miles and miles of credit. This is his show. You know, but difficult at times. He's sort of like sneaking in and, and taking a little credit. He, he loves the idea that everything went through his typewriter, even though I know with our scripts, that meant very little change sometimes, most of the time. Uh, you know, it just, just because we went on. There was a learning curve, but yeah. Sure, sure. But the, but the narrative, you know, I saw Knowing Her last week. That was our first script and very, very much our script. And it's sort of a drag all these years later to, to say anything against him because, you know, God, I, we just love the show. But there are ego issues that have made him jump in and and even giving us credit for Shakespeare would sometimes be a backhanded compliment because he was trying to imply that that was all we did. At this point, he's, his yeah. attention is elsewhere quite a bit. Just, yeah. uh, you know, Roger and, and Deborah and Carl and Carrie Aaron, you know, it was just, uh, oh, and Karen Hall one year, just all, she wrote a beautiful draft of, of Mulberry Street, you know, and it's a frustrating thing that that part's rewritten a little bit in history, you know. It's not some desperate need to rewrite all that. But as long as we're sitting here talking about it, it's nice for you guys to know some of the stuff, you know, absolutely full credit to him for so many things, including, I'll tell you a little story. He, I think Glenn's one of the few people in my career where I actively felt like I became a better writer because of his leadership. It was in, in that first season. And I, I think we really learned a lot coming from the comedy world and, and sitcom about writing to the truth of a scene. I think it was very, very instructive for us. He did a thing in knowing her that, oh boy, I, I saw the music change in that. Um, well, what is it? What's the song there now? I can't remember. Do you guys know the name of the song? The original the song is This Old Heart of Mine by the Ice Cream. Heart of Mine. Mine. It's called like Take It Down a Dial or something. Yeah, yeah. Take It Down a Dial. But yeah, it's the music is ridiculous because they're modern music and yeah, it doesn't fit in an 80s show. I was really used to the other one too. But I want to tell you, Ron and I wrote a scene there between Jillian and David out in the park in the dark and wrote, you know, a, a sort of a moonlighting scene. I think there was a little banter, there was some romance, but we wrote a whole scene. And when Glenn got it, that was our first script. One of the things that we just loved is that he took most of our scene out and put the music in mm -hmm. and just let that be the scene. There was no dialogue. They get out of the car, they look at each other, and they dance. Yeah, there is a little bit of back and forth at the beginning, but yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just love that. And those were the kind of things early on where we really learned from, you know, but very difficult sometimes to kind of overcome. You know, you kind of you get all the credit you need to for creating a wonderful show, and, and he did so many incredible things on it. But, you know, it's just, it's, I, I feel kind of, obligated to stand up for Ron and I and for the and for the staff, you know, for how much writing we actually did on it. You know, it, it was a lot. And that's been a little frustrating. It's been very frustrating. And it's been bottled up. And you know, I, I couldn't even listen to the commentary on the DVD because when it was announced these things were coming out on DVD, we were not contacted at all about coming in and talking about the Shakespeare episode, which I, I remember being 
obviously put off by that, but that was the beginning. Glenn was already, I, I know, had we sat down in that session and watched that show, we would have talked about how this came about. And that was not going to be the case. So we were given as a consolation prize the first episode of the next season with a claymation in it, I think. Yeah, that's right. You did come back little shiksa. And I really love that commentary that you did with Alan Arkish. This is in the season where the whole mood of the show has changed. And that was a slap to me. That was, that was and still is, a big slap to me. And then it sort, of, it sort of grew, frankly. I know, I know we're going on a little bit, you guys. I'm sorry if we're venting. Because I'm, I'm glad okay. we're clearing this up. Totally different perspective, yeah, because well, our, yeah, our perception of the writing is totally different. Yeah, I, I remember you're the one who listened. I remember you called me up and you said, holy shit. I think the thing that bothered me most um, is, I think Ron alluded to it earlier, I read an interview. And of course, you know, you're always subject to things being misrepresented in print, but this was quoted and specific, and you tend to think it was pretty accurate. Um, the story about him saying, you know, I, I was constantly talking about Taming the Shrew and doing an episode on iambic pentameter. I talked about it all the time. And then finally, the, the Jeff and Ron came up to me and said, you know, oh, why don't we just do one? Why don't we just do it? That's, that's just completely misrepresented. In the words William Shakespeare, Taming of the Shrew, never uttered. Until we did. Out of our head. <laughs> William Shakespeare, Taming of the Shrew, never uttered. Well, can I just say, Ron, that Taming of the Shrew was the perfect choice because that's Muddy and David. That's yeah. them. So and we yeah. done and any we better. You know, I never got to that until Ron said it because the detective show aspect just hit me first. And then we just tried to make that work. And then we were having trouble. We just didn't like what was coming out of it very much. So... You know, yeah, it's it's so obvious at a certain point. You know, you and know? I'll give Greg credit. Again, we would not have come back and said, hey, we're just going to do it Elizabethan. You know, Glenn said, well, why don't you just do it Elizabethan? And, and that was, you know, that was a pretty big deal. But mm -hmm. in the meantime, you know, and that did get us to Taming to the Shroom. But he did not come up with the idea, you know? Yeah. With Jeff, whole credit to him. He established the show. He established the template. He established the tempo and the mood and all of that. And yes, we did grow as writers at this time. But at a certain point, we were holding our own and the staff was holding it. So I got that off my chest. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for clearing that up because we do get the impression that Glenn wrote the bulk of everything. There is an impression there that everything went through his typewriter and that he had to buff everything up. And then the whole Taming of the Shrew story, yeah, we've heard um, 10,000 times about where that started. Feel free to ask the other writers when you're interviewing them. Yeah, you yeah, know, sure. You know, did you ever hear Shakespeare mentioned? And I'll bet on my kids' heads. The answer yeah. is no. Ron's yeah. not overly fond of his kids, so that doesn't mean a lot. But you know, that's okay. <laughs> I do like one well, of them. And by the way, <laughs> technically, um, everything went through his typewriter. You know, he would usually hold those pages until that early morning, but sometimes that meant adding more dot dot dots or or a longer parenthetical. I mean, or sometimes. With yeah. certain scripts, certain writers, he did rewrite a lot. You know, I mean, he did a lot of great writing on the show. That's not... Oh, yeah, that's of course. Not, not taking anything I mean, away from him. It would be nice, but, yeah. you know, vice versa. You know, he has to acknowledge... Exactly. Yeah. Can't take away from the other writers as well because, well, first of all, I don't think there was a lot of time on that show to go through anyone's typewriter too many times. Like you said, you were writing the, the fourth act of Atomic as it was being filmed, you know? So how many... Okay. Yeah. I just thought of it. I forgot this story, but um, God, what was the episode? Um, was it the one with the guy the body and we had we had Dan Luria? That's oh. Portrait of Maddie. Portrait of Maddie. Our second season, our, our first, yeah. The funny story there is we had um, only half that story worked out. Was that Roger's script? Portrait of Maddie. I, I will tell you. Uh, Portrait of Maddie was Carrie Aaron and Ellie. And Ellie yeah. Matheson, Yeah. Carrie yeah, came on staff later, but uh, that was their, they were a partnership then. Yeah. And um, we had half the story worked out and we let Dan Luria go. And we were, you know, again, right in the head of the camera. And um, we realized, oh, he's the guy who actually did the murder. And we had to get him back. And luckily his schedule, <laughs> if we had not gotten Dan Luria back, you know, that's <laughs> Another example of that. Well, also, yeah, Ron, wait. One of the fun parts of that is, uh, he was a cop in the episode. He had played the entire episode not knowing that he was going to be the murderer in the end. Um, so 
he had we no idea it. during most of that performance that he was the killer. So he hid it probably about as well as you could because he had no yeah, idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was more convincing, really, because Absolutely. he had no idea. Yeah, yeah. He actually had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> There's another episode where, um, is it Beat the Clock? What's the one where the guy says, I want you to witness my murder? Oh, witness for the execution. Well, we pitched this to, to, to Glenn in the room that, you know, we pitched the setup and, and what it's about and thematically what it's about. But we didn't have the story yet. And Glenn goes, great, write it. And we, we wrote up to the halfway point and then realized the only person who can exonerate David, we've killed. There have been no other witnesses. And then the whole point was this guy had been planning this for a long time and he was pretending to be an invalid and he was pretending to be hooked up to all this stuff so that he could get up and turn off his own oxygen. Oh, this is what we got to anyway. But we didn't know at the time, you know, that we hadn't come to that story point yet. And we were like maybe a couple of days, we, we had to film that. And my wife literally came up with the answer. What if his slippers had been facing the bed? Meaning he got up and he came back and took his slippers off. Now this would not have flown on Magnum P.I. This would not have flown on Hill Street. This wouldn't have flown on any show, but on Moonlighting, which is a whimsical show, that kind of thing yeah. would work. And I remember thinking, huh, oh, okay. So the next day, I pitched it to Glenn, and he goes, you know, she, she's a keeper. And yeah, we, uh, yeah, we, yeah. we did that. <laughs> so named the character after her by her maiden name, Tapia. That's and great. Tapia. And the other thing that's interesting is early on, especially in the first season we're there, there was a lot of angst and anxiety and sleepless nights. And then we got used to it. And then mm. if we had a script ready, we'd take a long lunch as opposed to like, okay, let's get a whole script done. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. you guys just worked better under pressure. Which he said at one point. He said, with your backs up against the wall. Yeah. In fact, I'll give you an example in a second. Another one? Wall, it, it, <laughs> it kind of frees your thinking. You guys can ask a question sometime if you'd like. Okay. No, no, no we, love all, we love all the info. It's great. It was the first time we, we had done it, and it was the episode where David and Maddie are, you know, it's, it's what you look for in another person, and someone comes in and says, I want you to find this missing person. And oh, it's basically right. my ideal wife, and I haven't yep. been able to find her, right? And oh, the um, also, we didn't know the end of that one either. Uh -huh. um, Bride of Tupperman. There were four acts at that time, an hour long, and we got through the three acts when... In the top of the fourth act, they confront the woman, I think, in the hospital. In the hospital, and, yeah. And literally, yeah. Jeff and I were trying to figure out, okay, but what's the clue? We find the footprint on the receipt that says the shoe, and they bought it in the store, and, and we just couldn't do anything. And so literally, uh, what we did literally was they come back in, David lays out the whole thing, and Maddie says, when did you figure that out? And he goes, during the commercial. And we would not have written that if we had the time to right. probably plan out. The uh -huh. other thing is we came up with, I thought, one of our funniest fourth act action sequences, which was uh, the funeral where they the villain takes off in in the um, in the uh, curse. And so all the funeral party goes after them. Yeah, yeah. Love and that. I'll never forget pitching that. <laughs> I'm knowing her. Knowing her. Jeff and I were working late that night. I don't remember if we wrote the note or anyway, but we handed it in. And I remember pulling into the lot. And when you pull into the 20th century lot, you can see straight ahead to our stage. And I saw a hearse down there. Uh, yeah. You know, the idea went. It was so cool. I like it. Yeah. Imagine the power. Oh, I love this idea. Oi, can you bring a hearse around? You know? <laughs> like... <laughs> yes. The power of the writer. It's like whatever is in your mind, we, what you want them to do. The next day you show up and that's the wheels are in motion and that's happening. Amazing. And yeah, amazing. it must be so satisfying to see a lot of those episodes and go that was just in my mind and then now it's like this tv show that you know millions of people are watching every week or you know now on hulu and in many ways it spoiled us first of all it spoiled us because we would never have except yeah. on our own shows the kind of freedom to do what we did and again hats off to glenn for that you know but the other is that you write a movie and it takes two years to make and you sit you know and it gets rewritten and other people come in and we were writing yeah. On Friday or Thursday, shooting Friday, cut into the episode on the weekend, airing the following. It we came within 24 hours sometimes of making air with last minute cuts. Um, and that's exciting, you know. Movies they don't capture them. You yeah, know, they don't have you know, instant gratification. Yeah, yeah. I've often wondered what's it like 
you have a vision, you write the script and you have an idea of what the character's like and then all of a sudden you see it on screen. Is it always what you expect from the actor, from what you've written? Not, not always. You try your best. I mean, obviously the trick of writing for TV and movies, TV especially because you've got ongoing characters, um, is to try to write stuff that fits who they are and what they do. Right. So you're right, thinking right. about that all the time. But yeah. yeah, it usually comes somewhat close, but there are always things that just the reading of a line or things like that, that surprise you. You know, I mean, that happens all the time. I think on a show like Moonlighting, it's hard to explain, but there's so much precision in the dialogue writing. You know, it's uh, because it at times moves so fast and the timing has to be very precise. And so once we got to know Bruce and Sybil's rhythms, that tended to sound like it was in our heads because, you know, there weren't a lot of different things you could do with it. You know, I mean, you had to do it in a certain way and we heard their voices, but there've been a lot of things, you know, and, and sometimes on some shows, things will slow down a little too much or sometimes an actor, you know, you're not on the set. So you're always subject to the director and the actor's misinterpretation too, which doesn't happen often, but once in a while they haven't quite understood a line and the reading of it is not quite right. But, you know, more often the than not. example for me in, in, in that, was Duckman and and Duckman we were in you know we, we were in total control over and Jeff and I were writing the scripts initially and then the staff stepped up and I was a fan of our own scripts I mean when we finished the staff would finish a script and whether we read it or not I was always a fan of reading a new Duckman script because the character was so outrageous and the world yeah. was so was you could just do anything and then we get in the booth and Jason oh God I, I mean I Alexander. I, Jason Alexander was the voice of Duckman. So lucky to get. Again, we we liked Adam Arkin. He was a strong, strong second. But we had to start the show. We had to start animating. And we had to start recording all the other characters that we had cast that we still didn't have uh, the lead. And Jason came in. And Jason, we would get in the booth and we'd written the script. But he would do the joke in a way where it just made me laugh out loud. And I never got tired of that. And we got the yeah. best call from... Um, an assistant at USA. I forget why, but we had called the offices in New York about something. And I, you know, Ron and Jeff, and we're here to talk to, um, what was her name? Can't remember. Anyway, Not sure. And the assistant said, just a moment, and puts us on hold, and then comes back on and says, by the way, you should know when your scripts arrive and they're distributed, we start hearing laughter down the hall. Oh, that's <laughs> fabulous. And that was the greatest thing. That happened quite a bit when Jason would come in and just, he, he so became that part. It's like he elevated, that's what you want the actor to do, to take that's it and elevate it. Jason also loves hearing that he just became a duck, too. That's always, that's always a big compliment for him. You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, um, yeah, it's amazing, like with Sybil and Bruce, you're talking about how you were writing, you know, Atomic as they were kind of filming it. Um, because people practice Shakespeare for months before they perform that, and then they're doing it. You know, especially there's a scene right where they get back to Petruchio's after they get married and the banter there kind of emulates what happens in Blue Moon with the the two. Right, um, right. Opposing bedrooms and things like that. The two doors, just, yeah. Yeah, the two doors and just the way that they deliver those lines. We were just like amazed at how they can take your words and just perform that in iambic pentameter. And not only are they talking in iambic pentameter, but they're doing their usual overlapping dialogue at the same time, which is amazing. Yeah, pretty great. I don't remember the order of shooting, so I'm not sure what parts it was. I think it was fairly in order because they were getting the script as it came. I I think that I don't remember the first two acts if they were completely, but pretty much the scenes where they had gotten the pages that morning, you know, just blew me away. I, I was just amazed at what they could do with it. It's just you know, like Ron said, it wasn't Shakespearean level writing, but it was still in a rhythm and had to be funny. Yeah. And uh, they they just were great. They were just great. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was lightning in a bottle from the writing to the you know production to the acting. You could never repeat it. That's why we're all so fascinated all these years later. Jay Daniel says part of the spontaneity of the show or the magic of the show was in the late writing in a way. Because it was the first time that the actors were hearing themselves say these lines and words. And so it's kind of like it was all in the moment. And a shout out to Jay. He was um, he's one of these producers many times on a, on a show, especially a budget challenge show. Their job is to say no. 
You know, no, we've got to find a more creative way or a less expensive way to do things. And and Jay always enabled us. He was always, yeah, well, let's see if we can figure this out. One time, I forgot what episode, I think it was, well, Maddie was away. We came up with the idea because it was a symbol of their relationship that David mm-hmm. trashes the BMW in a garage. He just drives it into a wall and back. And Jigsaw, forth. yeah. And we basically went in and asked Jake, can we destroy a BMW? And, and oh, my yeah, God. Get a Chevy, put it on a Chevy and, you know. <laughs> oh, cool. Okay. It was his BMW, which is really wild. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's so generous. Yeah. yeah. So generous. Other, yeah. It really was. Unflappable and such a good guy through, <laughs> through like a, a very difficult Never saw him lose his temper. Never saw him yeah. frustrated. All under he, pressure. Yeah, mm. it really was. Thank you for listening to part one of our interview with Jeff and Ron. Stay tuned next week for part two. Well, until next time. I'm Grace. And I'm Shauna. Thank Thank you you for for listening listening to to Moonlighting the Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.